It's good to be here with you all. Uh, good to start a new series on prayer that I'm actually very much looking forward to because I hope what this series does is kind of to desire to pray more to the Lord and to even see what the value of that is. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Uh, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6. Uh, we will not be flipping around today, and so you can camp out there. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, would you take and keep that one? That's our gift to you. We want you to have the Word um, and to be able to read that throughout the week. You can also follow along on your smartphone if you wish. If you have the Version app, or some people call it the Bible app, on the tab section, click on live, type in the well Austin. You'll be able to follow along in that way. There's notes, places uh, to uh, yeah, take notes, read the scripture and all that. You can also take this link and put it right into your browser if you do not have the Bible app and you'll be able to follow along that way. Uh, we want to give as many avenues as possible so that your eyes are on the word uh, so that we are being taught by the word of God and not by the words of men. All right. Um, so <clears throat> we're kicking off this sermon series on prayer. And I want to confess kind of right up front as we dive into it uh, that for me personally, prayer has always been something that's very, very hard to jump into. So a lot of times you find Christians where uh, scripture will be really easy and prayer will be a little bit more difficult. Or for some people, prayer is really easy, but they have a hard time with the word. For me personally, prayer has always been something that's very, very, very hard for me. In fact, it was a, 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 a unbelievable struggle for about 15 years of my Christian walk to where I had a really hard time just communing with God in prayer in any way, shape, or fashion, okay? I remember being in college, and I would try to pray, and I would frequently feel like, I mean, literally, I, I would feel like my prayers were kind of hitting my dorm room ceiling, and so I felt like I was like praying words kind of in my head to God, and I felt like they weren't even like ascending into heaven. Like, it was like a physical blockage was right above me because of how poor I felt in my prayer life. So I tried several different things to try to learn how to pray. Uh, I would pray with people every night. I would, I would call them on the phone and say, hey, would you pray with me? And I would call like seven of my different friends every night of the week. That didn't last for too long because they didn't answer my call after a while. All right. I would uh, go outside and just pray or walk and kind of pray in my head. That didn't work. So I'd go outside and pray or talk and look like a crazy person talking around, you know, my campus to myself. Uh, that didn't work too long. I would prayer journal. I would get on my knees. I would type out my prayers and just trying to find a way in which to pray was something that was very, very difficult for me personally. And so I want to start that off the top telling you that this is not coming from somebody who just had prayer down and it just was always easy for me. I had to work to even begin to scratch the surface of the intimacy that can be experienced with God in prayer, I had to strive at that, okay? And so over a 15-year period, slowly but surely, prayer began to be more and more something that was integrated into my life. And I would find myself asking this question all the time, why am I forsaking something that when I do practice it regularly brings me such great joy? Like, why am I not praying on a more consistent, a more regular basis? And I would ask myself that all the time, God, what, what am I doing here? Like, what, like, why do I always not pray to you when you produce such joy when I pray? And then slowly but surely, God kept working on me, created some hard situations in my life that forced me into prayer, okay? He began to speak to me in different ways, and slowly but surely, I began to be somebody who I feel like, at least right now, am beginning to understand prayer in a much more greater capacity, and I have a regular prayer life. But it took a lot of work, 
Okay, so I am not preaching as somebody who naturally prays. I had to fight and struggle to make it a consistent reality. But the joy that prayer brings between you and the God of the universe is worth fighting for. And so for some of you, prayer is really easy. And this will just be an encouragement and a reminder and a refresher to seek the God of the universe and to pray to him on a regular basis and to be uh, communing with God. But for some of you, you have to fight and you have to wrestle. The wrestle is worth it. The wrestle is worth it, okay? For prayer is how we gain intimacy with God. We commune with God. That's the subtitle of the series is communion with God because prayer is the way in which we do that. So before we dive into our text, I wanna do a couple of basic things to make sure that we're all on the same page here so we're talking about the same thing because prayer, uh, particularly uh, in our culture today, has taken on a very broad form and so I wanna make sure we're talking about the same thing, all right? As I said a couple of times, prayer, if you're gonna break it down into its most simple form is very simply communion with God. All right, it's communing with the God of the universe. So at its base, it's, it's talking to God. It's allowing him to minister to you, which is why I'm not just saying it's talking to God, but it's also him ministering to you. It's communion with the God of the universe. So I, I don't want you to lose that for today, okay? In fact, I, as we begin to think about prayer, I think that our imaginations are sometimes dulled to where uh, uh, we, we don't think about the beauty and the breadth of what was going on, but you are able to talk to the God of the universe. Like, like ponder that for a quick second. Like, don't let your hearts go dull on that, okay? You are able to talk to the God of the universe, okay? Mind you, in the Old Testament, only the high priest could go before God, and that only once a year, and that only after he cleansed himself like crazy, but because of the cross of Christ, Jesus is now our high priest, and we can talk to God whenever we want. In fact, we prayed when we first started setting up this morning, and we prayed before church started, and we said a couple of prayers on stage, and we'll say a couple more prayers, and we can just go, and we have the ear of the God of the universe because of Christ. Prayer is talking to God, and that is a fascinating mystery that I don't think we think about enough. I don't think we ponder enough. We don't allow our hearts to meditate on that. Okay, now, I want you to think how you personally pray for a second. Okay, because it's good to know kind of where we are as we dive into our text, thinking about prayer. How is it that you personally pray with God? Maybe you don't really know God in here. Okay, you're kind of searching. You're trying to figure this Christianity thing out. You're trying to figure God out. And so maybe you don't pray a whole lot. And that's okay, because I hope that this helps us see why prayer is valuable. Okay, or maybe you only pray to God when you're in a tight or a tough situation because your relationship isn't that deep. And that's okay. Because I think that as we'll see throughout the series, we can grow in that and be able to grow with God deeper. Or maybe you only uh, uh, pray when you need to repent or to confess. Or maybe you're a petition prayer, right? You're always asking God for something. But how is it that you personally pray? What does your personal prayer life look like? What does that look like for you? Let me say this to help you think about that more. I think the first five words of your prayer actually say a lot about what you think about God. Okay, the first five words that you commonly say in your prayer, I think actually shows you a lot about what you think about and what you see about God. So if 80% of your prayers are, God, I ask you for dot, 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 then you probably see God as a benevolent giver or somebody who uh, can respond to your prayer requests. And so you're praying those things. And listen, that's actually a correct and a good thing. But if that's 80 to 85% of your prayer life where it's always God I ask, God I ask, God I ask, and that's it, you're actually missing this huge communion with God that you can have. You're missing a huge element of prayer. 
Or if the first five words are always, God, I'm sorry for dot, 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 then you're seeing God as somebody who can forgive. Or maybe you have this fear of him as judge or whatever it may be in there. And listen, that's a good thing. We are called to have a reverent fear of God. We are called to confess our sins. Jesus is just to forgive us of our sins. And so it's good to confess our sins. But if that's 85% of our prayer, we're actually missing a huge portion of it. Or if it's, God, I thank you for, or God, I worship you because. Like, these are all good things, right? And so I'm not saying that any of these are bad. These are actually necessary and good. But I want you to think about what your common phrase is to God, because it actually shows how you view God. And I hope that even today we begin to find a balance in prayer. We find a little bit more of a balance in what Jesus lays out for us and how to pray to God. I even think the word that you call God says a lot about how you view him, right? Do you say, Father, 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 is that your repetitive phrase of God? Or God, or Lord, or King, or husband, or, or, or Abba, or whatever it may be. And I think a lot of times you can even see your personal view of God by the way that you're talking to him. Because once again, prayer is communion with God. So I want you to think about that, okay? Where are you at in prayer? And then as we walk through the text today, how can you balance out your prayer life to find more of a, of, of a balanced communion with God? How is it that you can uh, find the protection, the petition, the confession, the worship, and all the different things that God would have for us, okay? So um, this I want you to think about. We'll be looking at the great prayer, as I like to call it. Uh, a lot of people call it the Lord's Prayer, okay? The Lord's Prayer, in my opinion, is found in John 7. This is how he taught us to pray. This is a great prayer, okay? And so he's telling us, hey, this is how you pray. This is uh, going to be the pace setter for the rest of our sermon series, all right? So long intro. You tracking? We good? Can I get an amen? amen? All right, that was for no reason, but thank you. I like that. Okay, here we go. Um, so uh, Matthew chapter 6, pick it up there in verse 9. Jesus said to them, pray then like this. Okay, stop right there. So notice that Jesus did not say, pray this. All right? He said, pray like this. In other words, this is not how you should pray only, or, or this is how you should pray. It's not what you should pray only. You tracking with that? This is how you should pray, not just what you should pray. And so we don't just say the Lord's Prayer or the Great Prayer kind of over and over and over again, and that's our prayer life. Jesus says, pray like this. And so what Jesus is actually doing here is he's giving us and his disciples at the time who he was talking to a model by which we can pray. Hey, here's a model. Here's something I want you to pray like. Here's the things I want you to think about. The, the things I want you to say when you're talking to God, pray like this. This is how you should pray, not just what you should pray. And that's important for us because Jesus said, pray this always. That's the only thing we should ever be praying because apparently there's a lot of power in that, right? But we know that he actually extended that more and said, pray like this. So listen, this is a model, not a, a, a formula only, like something that we do and then we get something from God. Jesus has given us a model here, okay? Pray like this. Our Father, how comforting is that? I know it's getting emotional. How, how comforting is that? Like, God, I mean, think of all the ways that a holy God could have had us start off praying to him. He could have had us start off praying to him in so many ways. And Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father. 
What a comforting phrase. Colossians chapter 1 verse 3 calls uh, the Father the Father of Jesus. But in Colossians chapter 1 verse 2, it actually calls us our Father as well. And so you see this theme all throughout Scripture. Paul carries this out. Peter carries this out. That we actually call the God of the universe Father. The intimacy and the beauty within that cannot even begin to be measured Right, like we don't call him judge only though he is judge. We don't call him king only though he is king. Lord only though he is Lord. But Jesus starts off the prayer saying, man, there's intimacy. Say, our Father, draw upon this intimacy. Immediately, this should produce joy and aliven and awaken your hearts to desire to know the God of the universe. Because the God that we worship, the God that we serve, is not just some distant God way out in the, in the heavens that, that we have to petition and, and plead to come down. He's an intimate God that sees us as sons and daughters, that allows us to call him Father through Jesus. This is a beautiful start. The original hearers probably didn't go through the rest of the prayer. They probably didn't make it through the rest of the prayer because they knew God was holy. So they knew, they, called, they knew that he was Lord. So to say, Lord in heaven. They knew that God was just, was king, was judge. But to call him father, that would have almost sounded blasphemous in their ears, right? And because we're used to it, we, I don't think it hits us in the same way. But you have the opportunity to call the God of the universe father. There is great joy in that. God is a close God. You are not fatherless now. You are not an orphan, but you are adopted son or daughter of God. There's joy in that. John Calvin, um, a, a Puritan in the 16th century, said this, who would break forth into such rashness as to claim for himself the honor of a son of God unless we had been adopted as children of grace in Christ? Like, think, like, you break into the prayer saying this. Who would do that unless you've been adopted as sons and daughters of Jesus? Once again, this should awaken your heart a little bit, right? Our Father in heaven, he goes on, the next part. Our Father in heaven. So the beginning of our prayer shows us who we're praying to, right? It's a Father and he's in heaven. We're not kind of saying empty words into the air. We're, we're praying to a God who is in heaven, which means he's big and he's massive and he's in control. In fact, all throughout scripture, we see that the heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. The heavens cannot contain the Lord, the psalm says. And so we say, our Father in heaven. So we paint this massive picture of God, yet because Father is joined to it, we get this intimacy with God. And so we see that God is indeed huge, like we just said, but he's also intimate and able to be intimate with us. He's our Father in heaven. Immediately you get this beautiful marriage, this beautiful blend where he's both our Father yet in heaven at the same time. And so when you pray, do you have a time to remember who God is? Like, is that how your prayers start? Because that's what Jesus is telling us to start with, right? Remember who God is. Do you remember that he's holy, that he's just, that he's merciful or gracious or loving or good or whatever it may be in your life? Do you have a regular time in your prayer life where you just adore God for who he is and where you thank him for the position that he's put you in as bride, as son and daughter, as brother of Jesus, as family of God, whatever it may be, do you have a time where you focus on this? Because that's what Jesus is telling us to start with, to remind our hearts of the beauty that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he does want to be a ruler, yet we have the ear of God through Jesus. 
We have him as our father. And so there's beauty here. There's intimacy here. There's power and authority. Do you start off your prayers meditating on that and allowing it to soak into your mind? Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The next part comes. If you're used to the King James, hallowed be thy name, right? A lot, I remember this in the King James, so it's hard for me to like switch translations. But uh, hallowed just is a fancy word for holy. Okay, it means to be holy. We're not asking that God will become more holy because that's impossible. God is already holy. Whether we're reminding ourselves and asking that God's holiness would take roots in our heart, that our mouths would say God is indeed holy. You tracking with that? So God cannot be more holy. He's already perfect in his holiness holiness, but we're reminding ourselves, hey, would I confess this with my mouth, that you are a holy God, that you are a good God, a perfect God. So this also is a matter of worship. Hallowed be your name. Part of the balance that we need to learn in prayer is the part where we get to worship God. And so worship doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings, though praise the Lord that it does, and we get to sing of his greatness, but it also should happen in our prayer life and really on a regular, consistent, even daily basis where we are worshiping God, thanking him for who he is and praising him for what he's done. So prayer should help us worship and notice that Christ our Lord put this first and foremost. Prayer is first and foremost a worship of God. It's a positioning of our heart to see who he is. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come is the next piece, right? This is a complex term, okay? It's a complex thought, yet ultimately it's helping us remember the importance of the kingdom of God. And there's this beautiful balance that's happening. So we're actually asking partly that God would return and establish his kingdom on earth, okay? So your kingdom come down, God. I want you to come back, Right uh, In Revelation chapter 22, the second to last verse, we see this, uh, this word that uh, is Maranatha, and we translate it, Lord, come quickly. And that's been a prayer of the saints throughout all the ages. It, the, it ends in an amen. Let it be. Lord, come quickly. Amen. That's how the Bible ends. Right? And so we want the Lord to come back because we know that when he finally sets up shop, when his kingdom is actually here, then everything will be perfect. All the pain that we feel, all the frustration that we feel, all the trials that we go through will finally be put to a cease when the Lord comes back and establishes his reign forever. And so we're asking that God would come back. Yet at the same time, we're actually, because of the next part, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, all right, he's marrying these two things together. We're asking for God's current reign to take place on earth where we are now. And so we're saying something like this. This is often what I say in my prayer. Uh, God, I pray you would come back. God, would you please establish your rule? I want you to come back. But Jesus, until you do, let me run hard for the kingdom. God, begin to produce the kingdom through me or through the well or whatever it may be. And that's what we're praying there. God, I want you to come, but until you do come, let us run for the kingdom. Let us make much of your name, Jesus. Let us exalt you and bring your name to earth that men and women may know you. And so we're praying this and we're asking God this beautiful blend here. We want him to come back yet at the same time until he does, we wanna run hard for his name. We trust in his sovereignty that his rule is perfect. He knows when he's gonna come back. He knows he's not gonna let people, you know, that were gonna be saved just kind of fall off the map and just come back randomly. No, he's perfect in that. And so we're asking him, God, let your perfection finally come, but until you do, win people to yourself. Use me for your glory. D.A. Carson, a theologian, he just says this. To pray your kingdom come 
is therefore simultaneously to ask that God's saving royal rule be extended now as people bow in submission to him and already taste the eschatological, it's a fancy word for the end times, okay, the end times blessing of salvation and to cry for the consummation of the kingdom. So how often do you pray this? How often is this in your prayer request? Does your heart yearn to be home with Christ? See, part of what Jesus is doing in this prayer is that as you pray this, you have more of a yearning for Christ. You tracking with that? Like, as you pray this, you desire Jesus more. You, you want him more. You, you want to be closer to him. You, you feel more affection towards him. And so Jesus is having us pray this to stir up our hearts to be attached to God, yet his will be done that we would walk in his will. Okay, so does your heart yearn to be with God? Or in the reverse, are you yearning to be used by him that his kingdom would come? Notice, not your kingdom, okay? Not God let my kingdom come and then your will be done. No, but his kingdom come, okay? Here's a good question you can ask about the kingdom things. Are you praying for your kingdom or his kingdom? If in 2015, right, it's a new year we just ended. If in 2015, God answered all of your prayer requests, would the world be different or just your life be different? If God answered all your prayer requests from 2015, would the world look different or would just your life look different? If the answer is just your life, which I know it's a hard question because I think for a lot of us, that's where we'd be at, right? When I look at 95% of my prayer requests, it's really my life. Okay, well, Jesus is saying, no, I want your kingdom to come on earth, right? I want the earth to know about your kingdom. And so it's important for us to expand, to to get out of ourselves and to uh, amass the glory of God over the earth, even in our prayer requests. How are you praying to God? God wants the kingdom to explode. Jesus himself here says this. Revelation says this. All throughout Paul's letters, he's telling us to pray this way, to think about the kingdom of God that other people may know him. So there's a balance here as we walk into our prayer request. Now, notice there are 52 words in the Lord's Prayer. Okay? We just covered 22 of them, or 42%, for those of you who are good at math. All right? 42%, and all of it so far is God-focused. All of the prayer so far, 42% of the prayer is vertical focus. It's us and God or God and us. And it's this uh, 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 vertical thing, right? Before we do any petitioning, confession, any of that, it's a vertical focus. So it's shifting our attention off of the present world that we're in and off of ourselves and putting our attention and our affection onto the God of the universe, and so that's important. I find this to be normally true in my own life. When I pray in this form, when I use this as a model to prayer, I will come to the Lord with 517 requests, right? Like as I walk into prayer, I'm like, God, I have this list of things and here we go, okay? And I mean, it's a long list. And then after I do this, I find that I have like 5.7 requests, right? Like one of them, I'm not even sure if I should ask anymore, right? Like God shrinks it and he gets me to focus and to realize on what's actually important. And so that's what happens when your prayer begins vertical first is you get put in the right perspective to then even pray the rest of the prayer that God would have us pray. And so the desire of our prayer is eternal first and foremost, Right? It's, it's eternally focused first and foremost. It's about God first and foremost. We focus our attention on God. Notice too real quick that we want the Lord's will to be done. 
Okay, I think that's just an important part. I wanna wanna re-emphasize that again. We want the Lord's will to be done, not our will, because we trust that his will is perfect and just and holy and good, and not just good for him, but that his good is our joy, that as his good comes out, we receive joy. So you're uh, uh, done aligning your hearts to God's sovereignty until he comes to trusting that God is good, and then you move into give us this day our daily bread. Now I want you to think about this for a second, okay? Your will be done, now give me my daily bread. Is that a contradiction? Okay? Because it kind of seems like it, right? God's want you take control, God, you're good to go. You got it, you're good. I, now, God, give me these things. Right? That's what it feels like is going on here, okay? But it's not a contradiction. I think that Jesus put these two married together in a very intentional and specific way. Three reasons why it's not a contradiction. One of them... Uh, I was going to steal from Tim Keller, and he just is a lot better than me. So here's Tim Keller's quote, all right? Number one, why it's not contradictory. How he does this, how he, God, maintains control of history and yet still makes human prayer and action responsible within history is one of the most practical mysteries of the Bible. The teaching that our prayers matter, we have not because we ask not, that's in James chapter 4, And yes, God's wise plan is sovereign and infallible. These two factors are true at once, and how this is possible is a mystery to us. If we believed that God was in charge and our actions meant nothing, it would lead to discouraged passivity. Now pause there. Do you see what he's saying? If we believe that God was sovereign only, like like if God was just in control of everything and we kind of had no play in this at all, it would lead to discouraged passivity. And scripture rebukes that all the time because it's easy to fall into because God is sovereign and in control, right? But all the time it still puts a, a human action as important in the kingdom of God. And so if it was all God's sovereignty and that was it, then you just pray things like, God, would you, would you let my lust go away? And then you just hope it zaps it out of your heart. God, God, would you just help me to find this relationship that I'm looking for? And then you just think that he's just going to show up and do it. God, God, would you, uh, and whatever it may be, right? You have all these requests. They may even be good requests. But if you think that God is sovereign, that's it. Then you just pray it and then kind of sit back and wait for it to happen. That's discouraged passivity. Scripture speaks against that. If on the other hand, Keller says, we really believed that our actions changed God's plan, it would lead to paralyzing fear, If it was all up to us, how terrifying is that? How many times have you prayed something only to a year later to have not received it and been like, thank you, God of the universe, you did not answer that? Amen? Am I the only one? Look, my hand's up for real, right? Like, I pray this all the time, right? Like, last week I prayed something where this week I am glad he didn't answer that. How terrifying would it be if it was only based on our prayers and our plans? Like, like I know a lot of you, and you would make really crummy gods, right? Like, I would make a very crummy God. Praise the Lord that God is sovereign and his will will be accomplished. Yet at the same time, we're not passive about that. We're active within that. If both are true, however, we have the greatest incentive for diligent effort, and yet we can always sense God's everlasting arms under us. So these are not contradictory. They're a mystery, Okay, God is outside of us and two things that seem kind of contradictory to us can happen at the same time. We just can't see it. Listen, by the way, praise the Lord that we serve a God that we don't fully understand. Because if you could fully understand God, that would make you God. 
and we make crummy gods, right? And so it's not a contradiction, rather it's a divine mystery. Second, notice the order of this, okay? You ask God first for his kingdom and then your needs second, all right? We keep hitting on that, but it's important. So it's not a contradictory statement because of how we're praying it. You don't pray your plans to God and then ask him to align to them, God, would you align to my plans? Whether you seek God's plans and ask that you would align to his. You tracking with that? So it's important there that it's not a contradiction because of the order we're even praying this. God, I want your kingdom to come. Now here's how I think that can happen. Here's how I hope that happens in my life because I think this is what's glorifying to you. Right? We don't say, God, I'm going to pray this and it's my way or the highway. We get on God's highway, right? And we ride his plan and we trust him for his plan. Third, and this is important, Notice that God desires to give good gifts to his children. Like once again, would you let your heart rejoice in that? Don't, don't just hear those words. Like think about the reality of that. God desires to give good gifts to his children. In the Lord's prayer, we're not only vertically focused. Like God is holy. And if Jesus just left it with that first kind of three requests there, let your kingdom come, your will be done, earth is in heaven. Amen. Like we would all say, yeah, that makes sense because God is holy, God is right. But then he keeps going on. He says, hey, I want you to ask me of things. Why? Because God desires to give good gifts to his children. In fact, this is in the Sermon on the Mount. And later he actually says that same thing right? God wants us to ask for him. This is pleasing to him. Listen, some of you are afraid to ask God for things. I know it because I sit down with you in, in, in conversation. You're, you're afraid to ask God of things. Like as if as soon as you make a request to God, he's just going to smite you and then laugh at you, right? Like that's a messed up view of God. Yet to be honest, it's one that I hold very frequently. Like I feel like my requests aren't worthy to bring to God or like I need to pick myself up by my bootstraps. I would have never said that in Michigan seven years ago. That's a total <laughs> Texas phrase, all right? Listen, like I love, okay, with my daughter Micaiah, I love when she comes and asks me for help. Is it because it makes me feel powerful or in control or something? Not at all. Like usually she's asking me to get the blocks down off a shelf that she's not tall enough to reach yet. So it's not like awesome help, right? It's these little things. It doesn't, I don't get joy because it makes me feel powerful. It's because I want her to know that I love her. I want her to know that I care about her. I want her to feel my love and to feel my affection. And when she says, Daddy, can you help? And I say, yeah, and she gets the joy of that. I want her to know that I love her. When God is telling you to make requests to him, he wants you to know that he loves you. He is for you. He wants to give you good gifts. This is good news. And so this isn't contradictory. He says, hey, pray these things. I want to give good things to you. I want you to feel my care for you. God is for you. God has already called you a son or a daughter by allowing you to address him as father. Then he wants you to ask things of him that as a father, he may give them to you. This is good news for our hearts. So it's not contradictory as much. It's actually uh, uh, drawing our relationship even closer together. Now you're petitioning God for your needs, your felt needs, your desires. And notice that the word here says us, right? Give us this day. So you're not just praying for yourself, but you're also praying for the needs of others. Okay. So you're praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ, your family, your husband, wife, your, your church, your elders, whatever it may be. You're, you're praying for these different things, right? Give us this day. Here's what I think we need, God, and you include yourself in that. Forgive us our debts is the next part. This is repentance. This is asking for forgiveness for the things that we've done wrong in the eyes of God. Once again, how comforting is this, okay? 
Like, don't, don't lose this because I know we know the Lord's prayer. That's why I want to keep drawing us back to this comfort because we can just let these words go in and out of our ears. But we can simply ask God for his forgiveness and it will be granted. What kind of scandalous grace is that? That you can ask God for his forgiveness and then he grants it. You don't have to clean yourself up, right? You don't have to do 75 different things, you know, uh, bathe in this and then do this for seven days like we saw in the Old Testament. You don't have to do all these cleansing things and offer these sacrifices. You can say, God, forgive me. And then God does it because of the atoning work of Christ. Like we have great access to God now. Don't let that slip out of your hearts or your minds. This is a beautiful thing. You don't clean yourself up. You ask God to erase your debts. And he does it. First John 1, 9. You don't have to flip there. It'll be on the screen. But I want you to look at this. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice what the phrasing of this is. Notice the words here. It's very important, okay? It doesn't say if we confess our sins, God is merciful to forgive us our sins. Now that's true. God is merciful, and in his mercy, he forgives us of his sins. But it says that he forgives us because he's just. Why is that? If we confess God is just, it would be unjust for God to deny you forgiveness because then he would be denying his son's work on the cross. You tracking with that? Like, so because of Jesus, because of his work, because God said, it is finished, it is perfect, it is good, it is complete, now we just confess our sins. And if we do, God is just to forgive us. He's not going to withhold forgiveness from you because Jesus already paid for it. We just have to confess. Now we don't have to go to God in a fear that he will smite us, but yet we still go in a reverence because that is a wonderful mystery in Christ. We don't deserve this. Yet now God's justice is for those of us who call on his name. This is a beautiful gift. This is wonderful news. Tim Keller once again says this. Against the background of the Old Testament and the great mystery of how God could fulfill his covenant with us, we can see the freeness of forgiveness and its astounding cost. It means that no sin can now bring us under or bring us into condemnation because Christ's atoning sacrifice. It also means that sin is so serious and grievous to God that Jesus had to die. We must recognize both of these aspects of God's grace or we will lapse into one of the other two fatal errors. Either we will think forgiveness is easy for God to give. It wasn't easy. He had to kill his son. Jesus did not want to go. It wasn't easy. Or we will doubt the reality and thoroughness of its pardon. Or we won't think Jesus' cross was enough for us. By looking at the cross of Christ, we understand that we get the forgiveness of our sins. And it's free. And it seems so scandalous almost, yet it was such a high cost. Now we can just go and ask God for forgiveness. As we also have forgiven our debtors. Notice that God also calls for unity in prayer. Another thing we ask is unity. Not only that we would be forgiven our sins, but also that we would, in response, be forgiving toward others. Frequently what I personally do in my prayer time when I'm at this point is I begin to think about, hey, who is it that I'm really frustrated at? Who is it that I kind of have beef with, right? Who is it who I felt like I've wronged in some way? Who is it where I'm, I, don't, I don't really like them right now, okay? And I begin to simply pray this. God, help me to see them the way that you see them. Because listen, if they're a son or a daughter of God, they've been freely forgiven in Christ. Like that's what we just said, right? 
who in the heck am I then to withhold forgiveness from them? Like, doesn't that show that I actually don't even understand the gospel myself? Like, if I'm not willing to forgive somebody else of the things that they've done toward me, don't I realize that Christ, I have done so many more things against him, yet he's forgiven me infinitely. Like, God paid for me. And particularly if this person is a brother or sister in Christ, God already paid for them too. And he sees them as he sees Jesus, which is perfect. If they're not a brother and sister of Christ, he desires for them to know him. He longs for them to come into a relationship with him. So either way, who am I to withhold forgiveness? Right? A friend and I were just talking about this yesterday, two days ago, I think. It's, it's hard. It's hard to walk into that. Like, like it's really easy to try to hold grudges, but God calls us, even in the great prayer, to unity. Who do you have beef with, as I call it, right? I shouldn't use that term. Who do you have problems with, all right? Who is it that you are frustrated at? Who is it that you're finding hard to forgive? All you got to do is think about the gospel, Realize how much Jesus has forgiven you. And then you'll realize that whatever they did against you, even if they did one of the most grievous things on earth, was about 0.4% of what you've actually done to God. And yet he forgave you. He cleansed you of $10 million. You can forgive this person of $10, right? Forgive us as we have also forgiven our debtors, okay? So this is important. This is, this is important for us to see that we need to forgive them. And lead us not into temptation, this is simple. You're praying that you would be led down a path to create easy opportunities for you not to fall into sin, okay? God, help me to uh, uh, let, let come in my life uh, opportunities and areas where I would not walk into sin easily, right? Now listen, sometimes that's kind of obvious, right? Like, God, help me. Like, maybe you know that if you just came upon a bunch of money, you would forsake God. So you can honestly pray things like, God, you know what? Let me not do that or at least change my heart as that process comes up. Or maybe you know you've always struggled with like a certain type of thing, like, like drunkenness or, or, or sex or whatever it may be. You can know, you can pray to God, God, lead me away from that. Help protect me from that. And God will give you the way of escape, First Corinthians tells us. He'll show you the door to get out. Sometimes, though, you don't even know what the things are that trip you up. And you can ask God in his sovereignty because he's ahead of you already. God, protect me from this that may trip me up. I don't even know what it is. God, if I'm going to uh, be an idolater, if I'm going to worship false gods, would you just lead me away from that altogether? And one day when we get to heaven and he shows us how much he's protected us, we'll worship him for that. We'll say, God, thank you. Thank you. I didn't even know. And we'll bow down all the more. But deliver us from evil says. So you're praying against all forms of evil here. Sin, the world's persecution, spiritual warfare, or flesh, the world, the devil, the way scripture lays it out, okay? This is something that American Christians often forget, that spiritual warfare is indeed a reality. We kind of skirt around it in a lot of ways, but, but just to drop this in your mind real quick, okay? How often are you praying against spiritual warfare? Because here's what scripture says. Satan hates you. He hates you. Misery loves company. Satan will be the most miserable thing that has ever existed when Jesus comes back. But he wants you with him. And he hates your family. And he hates your joy. And he hates your freedom. And he hates everything about you. Are you praying for protection against that? There's a scary verse. We talked about it in a, we have a, a young married group that meets together. We talked about it in here where uh, Jesus goes to Peter and said, Peter, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you like wheat. But I prayed for you. And I'm like, 
That's it? Did you send some angels down too? Like, that sounds scary, right? She said, no, I prayed for you. And now he gives us this model in the Lord's Prayer. Pray for spiritual protection. It's important. Sometimes things are happening in your life that you just call natural that are actually spiritual. And if we were to pray more against this and be more aware of the spiritual reality, we would be able to get out of that more. So make a habit of that. Okay, so there you go. The great prayer. Okay, that's it, the, the Lord's Prayer though. So just to recap, this is the model that we use, not exactly what has to be said. And we should acknowledge and worship God, he starts with. We should pray for his return and peace. We should pray for his will. We should make petition. That means request, by the way. We should make request of God, ask him for things. We should repent. We should extend forgiveness and unity to others. And we should pray for guidance and against spiritual warfare, okay? Now, we could end here and say, now you go and do likewise. Now you go and pray this way. And we can end our sermon in that way, right? Because this is a good thing to practice, right? Like if you add this into your prayer life, you will have a far more balanced prayer life and you will commune with God in a more natural and a more consistent way. I think most of us would greatly benefit by adding this into our lives. However, how can we even pray any of these great things. Like I I keep hitting on that, right? How is it that we can even loft up these requests before the God of the universe? What gives us the right or the ability to pray these things? How can we even lift our eyes up to heaven? Like when you see people who see God in scripture, they bow down as though dead and they can't even look at God. They say, woe is me, I am undone. How is it that you and I now can just freely and fully walk into the presence of God? And this is where, it's already getting a little bit late, so I can't go too long, but I can just get so excited, okay? The beauty, of the, the beauty of the gospel in this, like, do you see this? Like, friends, no way could you call God your father, okay, unless Jesus was separated from the father that you may actually call him father. That's the gospel, right? Like you were an orphan. You were actually a child of Satan, scripture says. And then Jesus was separated from the Father so that you may be reconnected with the God of the universe. The fact that you can call God your Father is because Jesus lost his Father for a moment. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His relationship was cut off that you may have relationship with God. The prayer begins with an understanding of the gospel, that in the gospel, we can now call God Father and Jesus our brother, co-heirs with Christ. We can think about heaven, our Father in heaven, because Jesus descended from heaven. Jesus was cut off from heaven. Now we can look up toward heaven. Jesus came down onto earth and into the depths so that you and I who were destined for hell can now be saved from that. Now we can look toward heaven, think about heaven, and even desire heaven to come because we are now friends of God. We'll be a part of heaven now because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because of what Jesus did, we now have that relationship. God's name to be holy. God's name who we once warred with can now be beautiful in our mouth. We can say beautiful things because the Holy Spirit now lives inside of us because of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. We now have God dwelling inside of us that we may lift up his name as holy, that we may praise his name, that we may just sing songs so freely. It was because Jesus was separated from all that. Once all we looked forward to was earth, now earth is the worst thing that we'll ever experience. We get to look forward to heaven because Jesus left heaven and came to earth that we may leave earth and go to heaven. This is all gospel-centric, right? How can we pray his will be done? Think about this. Your will be done. We know that God is trustworthy. How do we know that? 
Because this is the part of the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. God, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but your will be done. And God's will was done. And because God's will was done, we all now can be sons and daughters. We all got redeemed, but so did Jesus. Jesus died, but yet he rose again. God rose him from the grave. God's plan was perfect. So we can pray, God, your will be done. And even if that means momentary pain for us, we know that God's glory will shine in the end and we will rise forever with him. Because Jesus went before us. He was our example. He showed us that we can trust God. We can believe that God is good. We now have the same thing because we are sons and daughters. So every single aspect of the Lord's prayer has been made possible and true because of what Christ has done for us, right? Forgive us our debts. Where I looked at it, it was placed onto Christ that we may be free. God treated Jesus the way he should have treated you so that he can treat you the way he should have treated Jesus. Yet this was the will of God. He forgave us our debts that we can come into relationship with him. Friends, let the gospel drive your affections to desire to pray to God in these types of ways. Let the understanding of the mystery and the beauty of the gospel drive your heart to desire to know God more. My prayer is that this year as a church, as we become more and more rooted in the gospel, we would desire to pray these types of prayers more and more that God would stir up our heart's affections for him, that we would cling to him and find him more beautiful than anything else. Friends, let's pray like this, as Jesus said. Let's pray like this more this year. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you once again that we can just say, let's pray. And then we can go before you, Father, and worship your name. God, you are good. You are holy. I thank you for that. God, I do desire that your will would be done here, even in this church, God. Would you let your will be done? Would you let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Jesus, give us more of an ability and more of a desire to pray to you. I believe that that is in your will, God, because you long to have relationship with us, to commune with us. And so give us that desire, God. Forgive us in areas where we have not prayed to you, either because of laziness or uh, 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 ignorance, a lack of understanding.